part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you'd open your Bibles to First Peter, we're starting a new series last week. And uh, now I said before, Carly always argues and, and she's actually teaching the back so she didn't get to hear what I said before. She said, I don't think you should ever start a sermon off by kind of giving, you know, this asterisk beforehand that you're not going to like this sermon. And, uh, and I always said, well, you know, I'd almost rather tell them, you know, if you were over to my house and I burned, you know, the food for dinner, I'd almost say, hey, look, guys, I got busy. The, the, the food's a little bit burned. Rather than sitting there acting as if it was all enjoyable and you're going, this is the worst food I've ever had in my life. So I don't know if honesty is always a good policy. Uh, Carly kind of thinks, hey, just let them decide. I'm kind of under this impression that uh, when we have a really heavy passage, and this is a heavy passage this morning, and it really is theological rather than practical in nature, that it really is one of those things. I'd rather you know that up front. I'd rather you know that this is one of those times that God doesn't just deal with our felt needs. In other words, he's not just trying to make us comfortable in the sense that our everyday problems and our challenges are going to be put to the side and that, he, that life is just going to get better tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. What we find is that Peter is actually having to address some people that he can't make that promise to. If you weren't here last week, let me do a real, real quick review so that we kind of have that setting for First Peter. It is written by Peter. Uh, remember, we said that he's the where, where Paul kind of spoke from a uh, sense of logic and from the head. John spoke from the heart. He was the very loving. Peter's the guy who speaks from the gut. He's kind of spontaneous. And so he kind of writes that way. He lived that way, and he kind of writes that way. And yet there's a maturity about Peter by the time that he's writing this. This is about 30 years, give or take a couple of years, one way or the other, after Christ has ascended. And so, you know, it's, it's, he's matured. This is a time later on. And a lot of the people that he's writing to, they never saw Christ. He's writing from about 1,500 miles away from the people that are actually going to receive this letter and pass it around. This was not a letter that was one to one church dealing with their specific problems. Uh, again, he's writing from Rome and about 64 A.D., and he's writing to these churches that are in a place called Asia Minor, and he's writing to all of them. They're going to take this letter, read it, and apply it, and kind of pass it around. But all these churches have one thing in common, and that is that they're facing persecution. They're, they're really feeling the heavy weight of the Roman government, and uh, really even now the Roman people. Now, again, I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here because we don't know definitively. Peter didn't say, I wrote this January 14th of this particular year. We don't have that in the epistles and the letters that were written. We don't have this specific date. And so the best that scholars can do is say it probably was about this time based on the kind of the writing and what's going on. There's a very important date in history that's not recorded in the Bible, but it's certainly recorded in the history books, and we see it reflected in the Bible because we see kind of a turn and an aggression that begins to happen in some of the parts of Acts and some of the writings of the epistles. And that is when Nero burned down Rome. Uh, I think there were 11 districts. I could be wrong on this. I, I'm thinking there's 11, and he burned like seven of them down. Now, history tells us that, for the most part, Nero, the emperor, is the one who started that. 
In fact, they would say that it was probably pretty much because he wanted to redecorate. And I say that not in a funny way, but he just really liked to build. Nero was known that he was this emperor that liked to build new things. And so in order to build even more new things, he decided that, okay, I've got to get rid of some of the old things. He didn't like some of the quadrants. He didn't like some of the the, the old established Rome. And so he burns down Rome, a good portion of Rome, and when he sees that the people don't really like his, you know, his desire to do that because that was their home, it was their shops, it was their, uh, where they lived, there's kind of this backlash against Nero. And so he does what a lot of, let's say, politicians do. It's not my fault. It's actually your fault. And he puts the blame squarely on Christians. By this time, again, we're about 30 years out after crisis ascended, and Christianity has started to go into different places of the world. And, and some people have embraced Christianity wholeheartedly. Other people, it's kind of an affront to some of the things that they have believed before. And so there's mixed feelings. Well, throughout Asia Minor, we have these people. It's still a Roman province, Roman control. And what we see is these churches that he was writing to, they were really being persecuted to the point where I was quite graphic last week. Again, it's just the reality. They did heinous things. It wasn't just, okay, you know, you're Christian, and I don't like that you're Christian, so you're no longer working for me. That certainly happened. It wasn't just, okay, no son of mine is going to become a Christian. I put you out, even though that happened. Think about what happens oftentimes if you have any friends who are ministering in a Muslim world right now, And what happens when somebody who comes from a Muslim background puts faith in Jesus Christ? A lot of times it truly is, hey, you don't work here anymore. Other times, hey, you're not part of the family anymore. You're going to take up Christianity? You're not part of our family. You're dead to me. And other times it is actual death. This was happening 2,000 years ago. And so Peter is writing in this response And these people are kind of inflamed against Christians because whether it's fake news or not, guys, many of them did believe that, okay, it was the Christians who burned down all of our history and all of our cities and all of our heritage. And so they have this great kind of anger and hatred toward them. Now this morning we're going to, last week we also talked about that there was two kinds of hope basically in this world. There's a hope based on chance. And there's a hope based on truth. Believe it or not, (laughs) uh, when you started dating, if you're married today, I I believe in a sovereign God, so I'm going to say in one way that that was God. God already had that ordained. He kind of had it. But in one way, from a earthly perspective, uh, do you think that was more hope based on chance or hope based on truth? Now, chance, I'm not talking about luck or something like that. It was destiny. We looked at each other across the the cafeteria, and we saw... No, I'm talking about that, did you have any guarantee when you went out on the first date that this was going to be husband or wife? If somebody would have told you on your first date, this eventually would be your husband or wife, what would you have told them? No way. Or, or maybe yes way. I mean, sometimes you knew immediately. But what we see is that there's two different kinds of hope. This... Hope built on a chance or circumstance, like buying a raffle ticket or uh, getting a particular job. You can go and be very qualified for a job, but just because you're qualified for a job, does that mean that you always get that job? No. 
So there's truth, and yet it's really kind of chance because you didn't know that five more people were going to come that were even more qualified than you. And that's not luck chance, but it's just the odds that you didn't know that there was going to be five other people. But then there's hope that's based on truth. When you pay your mortgage every month and you write out that check, if you're still doing that, and you're doing it for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, whatever it might be, your hope based on this truth that if I keep on doing this month after month after month after month, at the end of 20 years, 25 years, 15 years, 30 years, they're going to send me the title to this home and I'm going to own my home. When you write that check out, you're basing it upon the truth that if you do what you're supposed to do, that this will happen in the end. And so there's, you know, you don't sit there and wonder, okay, I wonder if this is just wasted money. I write that check, and I write going, okay, I'm this much closer now to having the house paid off. Does that make sense? So, again, you can say, well, Bobby, the, the house could always burn down. Or you could, yeah, I realize that in this world that there's still some chance involved. But for the most part, I'm operating under a hope based on truth. If I diligently do this for 15 years, my house will be paid for. And they said on truth. They made it, we, we signed a contract. It says here you pay. And you pay this every month for 15 years and the house will be yours. Well, when we come down to real life, folks, we begin in, in verses 3 through 5 this morning. And I want you to, to tell me, in your Bible, a lot of times they'll have a little heading over the top of a section. When you get to verse 3 or right before verse 3, what are some of the titles that you may have written in your Bible that kind of describe what this next section is all about. Okay, praising God for living hope, the risen Christ, living hope, the hope of eternal life. Well, one word keeps on coming up in this. Hope, does it sound like a hope based on chance or a hope that's based on fact and truth? And one thing that we're going to find out is that Peter, who cannot promise these people that they will even be alive tomorrow, he cannot promise them that this persecution is going to go away. What he can promise them is that because they are Christians, he can, pre- he can promise them that there's a living hope in Jesus Christ. Now, that's important for us to understand that this is not an evangelical book. Peter's not writing to make converts, okay? That doesn't mean that somebody can't read this and, um, you know, say, man, I I want this kind of living hope in my life, and and then turn to Christ. But he's writing to Christians. We found that out in verse 1. He's writing to people who have already have a relationship with Christ. That's very important to know kind of the objective of the writer. And he's writing to encourage them and to strengthen them because they are facing an unknown future, even the very next day. Verse Peter, chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, an unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be ruled at the last time. Okay, is this a might-be home or a will-be hope? A, a, a might-be hope or a will-be hope? 
a will be hope. So again, there's two types of hope. You, you can put all your money in on something and, and a might be hope, and it might and it might not work out. Now there's other things you're going, okay, this is a will be, it's just not yet. When you pay that mortgage, it's a will be. As long as you keep on paying your monthly, they're going to send you this title at the end of this time. It's okay, this, this is what we've been working for this whole time. And so you're working every single month to something that will be. It's just not yet. And that is, as we said last week, the life of the Christian. It's not that there's not a foretaste. It's not that there's some, not some joy. That please don't hear this in some kind of miserable thing that, okay, guys, if you can just endure this world, then what's coming is a lot better. No, we can have great, great joy. There can be great, you know, even happiness in this, in this world. Remember, we said that happy isn't bad. It's not evil, but it is different from joy. But when you're writing to some people that they don't know if their son or daughter, mother, father, brother, sister is going to even be alive the next day. Because remember, again, I'm not trying to be really gross here. I'm not trying to you know, be extravagant. And, and, but they were taking people out and they were dipping them in oil and using them for human torches. It was just one form of the many persecutions that they had. This wasn't just, okay, this happened to one person and that could happen to you. No, this was happening to a lot of different people. They were being persecuted on every level, losing jobs, losing family members, being kind of disconnected from the whole rest of the family, losing their life. And so it's kind of hard to write to those people and say, hey, let me give you a first verse from Annie. The sun will come out tomorrow. Really not trying to be silly, but I sometimes... I feel like sometimes in Christianity we, we try to make it more any than God. And what do you tell that person who is going through such heartbreak and the sun doesn't come out? That sun of that particular problem, of that particular thing, doesn't come out tomorrow. one of the things I love about the Word of God, one of the things I like about God as He relates to us through His Word, it's real, even when it kind of is hard to digest. In one way, I really do want, if you just had Bobby's in His desires, I want a fairy tale God that comes out with the magic wand and says, Cancer, you're gone. Marriage, you're restored. Finances, you'll never be able to spend all that I'm going to put in your bank account. There's a real part of that that I would not mind. When I talk about that we've made comfort an idol, I leave that race. I like my comfort. I'm just being honest with you guys. But one thing that God is going to be even more honest about is that he doesn't make a, a promise to bring comfort even to a situation where we can say, well, the good guys are the Christians here and the bad guys are the ones that are like the Romans. That was the whole case of the disciples where they repeatedly went up to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, do you see? Hey, Jesus, uh, recognize we're kind of losing. The bad guys are winning. What do you mean you're not going to establish your kingdom right now? That's why we signed up for this gig. We want, it to, we want you to take power and authority. Hey, I think you can do it. Thousands are following you. Tens of thousands will be on your team. And they always wanted 
that earthly kingdom be set up so that it could bring about a present comfort. And we can look back in history and we can look back in the Bible and say, man, I wouldn't have done that. And I'm saying, I would have. I think I would have been at Jesus' coattails. Saying, don't you know this hurts? If you have the power to overthrow, let's overthrow now. What we see here is that Peter doesn't make any empty promises. Most of the hopes that we have in life, guys, in reality, are might be hopes. Your health, that's a might be hope. Who's guaranteed of health tomorrow? I know this is another one of our idols. And please, again, call me this week and we'll talk. But we can even make family an idol, guys. As much as God has said, man, family is a good thing. It's a great thing. It can be a godly thing. We can even make it an idol thing if we want comfort for the family over the things of God. But is your family guaranteed for tomorrow? Is your marriage guaranteed for tomorrow? Are your sons and daughters, I'm not trying to be out there. Do you realize how tenuous life is? And that's not to get us suppressed. It's not to get us discouraged. It's certainly not to become fearful. It's to get a perspective to know that in life there are these things that, we are, that are might be hopes and, and then there's some things that, hey, this is a will be hope. And what Peter begins to point to here is a will be hope. Might be hopes are like, I, I hope I make the basketball team. That's a might be hope. You might you might not make the basketball team. You might or might not get that job. I hope I get, you know, stay healthy as I grow older. You might or not, might not stay healthy as you get older. And so we live in this world of a whole bunch of might-be hopes. And sometimes those hopes die. Some of the toughest counseling I ever, ever have to do is a husband and wife whose spouse has left them. And they said, I didn't want that. Pastor, I would do anything to get my family back, to get my wife back, to get my husband back. And you see that they never really saw the vulnerability, or maybe they saw it, but now they are heartbroken, and that spouse is gone. And I hope that they had, that they were going to have this simple little life with a family and maybe a home and a dog and a cat and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. Now that hope has died. And it's so hard to sit on the other side of the, the room and the chair and not be overwhelmed with compassion because you see their heart breaking because they had put everything they had maybe perhaps into that and they said this is a hope that is just that will be and they have to face the fact that it's a hope that might be and a hope that maybe in this case has actually died. Truth is, guys, a lot of things, a lot of hopes in our lives may, may eventually die and and. and there are, more, there are fewer things in life that will ever make us more sad than when, when hope dies. Very few things that will ever challenge our faith, our well-being, when a hope that we invested in dies. And Peter knows this. 
And he writes to people who know this. People who are not taking their tomorrows or their next weeks or their families or anything about them. They're not taking any of that for granted because they realize that they're living life in a very vulnerable world of a lot of might-be hopes. And so what does Peter do? He answers this might-be hope world with the one, and, and this is, how many fingers do I have up? One. He doesn't give them three answers. He doesn't give them five answers. He says, guys, there's only really one thing that I can point to. <laughs> only one thing that I can point to that is truly a will-be hope for you as a Christian. And that is the security of your relationship with God. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He takes their might-be-hope world and environment and life and, and he points them to a hope that will be. It's a living hope because why? Because Christ is alive. And Peter is old enough to where he can say, look, I know this because I saw him. I saw him actually hang on a tree. I actually saw him die on that tree. I actually him placed in a grave, and he was dead. But I also saw him rise from the dead. And I've witnessed him, his death, but I've witnessed his resurrection. So Peter comes back and he says, I want you to know, because again, a lot of these would have been kind of, they didn't see Jesus. They're going on the fact of what Others have told him, and Peter says, I want you to know, I've seen it with my own eyes, and I want you to know that this hope that we have, it's a living hope. I saw Christ alive. He takes a past truth, the resurrection, and he points to a future truth in verse 4. Look how he describes this future truth. And before we read it, if you're a Christian, if you've truly placed your, your hope on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not on moralism, not on, I'm really trying hard here, but you've truly said, that, look, I, I needed Christ and his death on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to make me right with a holy God. If that's where you've placed your hope, then this is your future. This is your inheritance. This is what Peter says God has for you. Verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, how many hopes do you have in your life right now? We have a lot of hopes, okay? A lot of things that we're investing in. A lot of things that we're putting effort in. How many hopes do you have in your life today that could be characterized by those three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? It doesn't mean that we're investing in bad things. Again, let's make sure that just because something isn't something as pure as the thing of God, that doesn't mean that it's evil. But how many of you would say that your job is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? You may be the best one at your job, at your place of employment, but I don't think that we could use those words. How many of you say that your health today, 
And it's easier for you in the 20s and 30s than us that are older. Say, man, my health, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We can invest in a lot of different things, and they're not evil things, but there's very few things. In fact, Peter only points to one thing that is actually described by these words. And so look what he says there in verse 5. Who by God's power, that is this inheritance that you have, is by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That word guarded in the faith is a military word, uh, in, in the Greek is a military word, and think of garrisons. Do you know what garrisons are? Compounds of protection. You know, you'd build a garrison around something that's very important, maybe around the city, garrisons, and that's the word that he uses here. And he says, here's what I want you to know, that in this world of its ands and buts, in this world where a lot of things are not sure, here's one thing that is sure. Not only is it assured, but it is undefiled. It is yours, and it is being guarded by God himself who has set up garrisons around it. This is your inheritance. Now, here's the bottom line, guys. Is that enough? I mean, if I'm 95 and I'm on my deathbed, it's enough. Hey, if I'm 75 on my deathbed, that's enough. Why? Because I don't have a whole bunch of choices. I'm, I'm looking square into the face at that moment into what is really true and what is the, the might-be hopes and what is the will-be hopes. And Peter points, not just because it's a point of death, but because of any persecution, because of any trouble, because of anything that would challenge our lives. He he tries to point out, guys, there is nothing that is assured in this life except for this one thing, that if you're in Christ Jesus, this is your inheritance. And here he describes this inheritance, and he says it's guarded by God himself, who set up garrisons around it. This inheritance is based on what God has done, your salvation. Our salvation is really in threefold, guys. What God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Salvation in the Bible, a biblical look at salvation, is always going to be in those three tenses, what God has already done. And if you look back in chapter, just a point of fact, if you want to look back in verse 2, it's one of those verses that we see the whole Trinity represented there. God elected you. He chose you. Christ saved you by his blood. And the Holy Spirit is doing this thing that we call sanctification, making you more like Christ every single day. It really talks about this process. God elected you. He chose you. You were saved. You're being saved by the blood of Christ and what he's done. And the Holy Spirit is protecting that. He's making you more like Christ every single day. See, here's my heart this morning, guys. All of this is theology. All of this is kind of what you probably already know. And to be honest, some of your eyes are glossing over. And and I get that. Man, if I'm sitting where you are, that's why I went into the ministry, so I wouldn't have to sit where you are. Because I would go, man, I would be asleep by now. At least I get to walk around a little bit. And I really do get 
that in one way, this is either very simplistic to you, already a given to you, and, and yet here's the whole thing as we see Peter apply it to real life. Is what Christ has promised you, this only thing that you can know for sure, the only thing that he points to, this living hope, your salvation, your security in God himself, your inheritance that you have, is that enough to get you to rejoice today or tomorrow or next week? Because that's the connection that Peter then makes in verse 6. What's the first four or five words? And this translation will be the first four words of verse 6. In this you rejoice. In what? What's the this? Your inheritance. Your salvation. Not your security. Not not your happiness. Not not your comfort. not, Not all these other things. He points to one thing. He says, in this you rejoice. Now here's the whole bottom line. Is this living hope enough to enable you to rejoice until that hope is realized? In your mind, and and I believe this, please correct me if you think it's wrong. We'll have a good discussion, maybe a, a good, healthy debate on it. I really believe that in everybody's mind, in in the human mind, the human heart, the human psyche, there's a battle going on to be king of the hill. How many of y'all ever played king of the hill? You know, growing up, if if you're kind of, if this was the hill, then Ricky would come and, you know, Seth would come, and you're trying to take me out, and you're trying to get to the top, and you're trying to be king of the hill. It was really a fun game. It was quite a dangerous game. Because, uh, you know, it depends on how aggressive the people were. But, I mean, there were no rules. You could take arms and throw people off, pull them off. Played one time on the top of a a swing set where the the ladder was pretty... Man, to be king of the hill, you know, they were coming after you and there was a long fall out. Well, here's what happens in, in the mind and the heart, I believe, of every human. Your problems... And obstacles in life are, are trying to be king of the hill of who's going to gravitate to control your mind and your thought life and, and what you think of at 2 o'clock in the morning when you stir and you're going, man, well, what, why am I thinking about this at 2 o'clock in the morning? And it could be finances and it could be health and it could be your marriage and it could be a lot of different things. And I think that there's a battle always going on of who's going to be, and I want to be the problem. And, and what Peter is saying here is, look, because of who we are in Christ Jesus, and because of this inheritance that you have, this rejoice, now look what he says afterwards, though now for a little while, and that's only a little while if you compare it to eternity. There's, there is no little while when you have cancer. There is no little while when a husband or wife leaves you and says that they don't want to be married to you anymore. There is no little while when they said, well, you know, you don't work here anymore and I'm sorry that you didn't save up so that you can kind of float your family through this difficult financial time. Folks, those are not little whiles. And yet, Peter either has the audacity or he just has the truth to say, hey, in this rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. 
either the most honest words or the most uh, insensitive, aggressively hurtful words. I mean, I can't sit across from somebody if I'm counseling them and they're really going through all these really, really difficult times. I go, man, rejoice in this. <laughs> you're Christians. I don't care what happens to you here on earth, but eventually you're going to go to heaven and you have an inheritance waiting for you there. How many of you would come back for a second counseling session if, if you came in and you said, Bobby, you know, my marriage is falling apart, my family's falling apart, my body's falling apart, my finances are falling apart, and I said, rejoice in this. Your presence, you know, you're, you're now, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And Peter is he's trying to give us a grip on life, guys. Because the truth is, when we go through all those things, those are all things, hopes that we've invested in. And those hopes can die. We hope that they don't, but, but they can die. And he points us back to one hope that will never die. And that is our relationship of what Christ has done for us. And here's the challenge for the rest of your Christian life. Then I'm going to sit down and we're going to finish and be done. But I promise you, I will be challenged with this and you'll be challenged with this for the rest of your Christian life. Is that enough? Is this inheritance enough to rejoice when we're going through these various trials? And I can say that to you real easy when it's your life that's going through it. (laughs) How many of you are a better encourager in Christ than you are at receiving encouragement in Christ? Got those verses ready, don't you? Well, the Word says, and you do it in love. I mean, you really do do it in love and respect. You're just trying to be an encouragement to somebody. And yet if somebody gave you those same words if you reverse the, the tables and you reversed all the circumstances and they gave you the same words, isn't there something within you that's battling that truth? Fear. All those different things like that. That's why this is a difficult sermon because it's not one of those we go out of here just going, yes, our problems are solved. Peter doesn't try to solve a single problem in their life of all this persecution. He does not guarantee them life in the sense that they're going to go on and and have a... He doesn't guarantee them family. He doesn't guarantee them anything except for this. You have this inheritance. And in the biggest picture, the one that really matters, eternal picture, you're okay. Because this inheritance is, is imperishable. It's unfading. It is secure in Christ Jesus. And God himself has set up garrisons to protect it, to make sure that it will happen. And you and I will be faced for the rest of our lives. This is where faith comes in. This is where the challenge comes in. Is that enough to rejoice? Not just is that enough. Is it enough to rejoice? Even though now for a little while, if necessary, we're grieved by various trials. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, everything within our our faith tells us that this is enough. And yet, Father, there's the reality that, uh, man, when we face some trials and brokenness comes to our lives, Father, 
I don't know, sometimes we even find either that these are the best promises ever or sometimes we're actually offended by some of these promises as if, God, you don't care about this present day and my heart and getting me back to a place where I can really say that I feel like life's going okay. Father, I pray that this morning that you would just show us in this really tough passage that Christ is enough and even enough to rejoice in the midst of trials because our salvation is secure. It's unfading. It's imperishable. And this inheritance that we have, that we are the very sons and daughters of the living God, that it has been bought with the finished work of Christ. So, Father, uh, help us to see that this morning, this living hope that, that Peter talked about. And, Father, let us see the sufficiency in this living hope. We love you and we thank you as we pray all this in the hope of Christ, our living hope. And we pray it in his name. Amen. listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.